Give you all a warm welcome to our service today. Uh, we'll begin by singing Psalm 67 from Sing Psalms. God be merciful and bless us, shine upon us with your face, that the earth may know your actions and all lands your saving grace. We'll sing the whole psalm. Shall we pray? Lord, it is good for us to be in your presence. We know that in a certain sense we're always in your presence all the time because you are the God who is everywhere. But we know also that when we gather uh, and worship that there is a special sense in which uh, you are here. As Jesus himself said, even where two or three are gathered in his name, that he is, or he would be with them. And therefore... That is the most important part of our gathering here today, that, that you are here. And the amazing thing about that is, is that every gathering uh, of your people throughout the world can say the same thing. And each one of them, each of these gatherings are obviously different from one another. And they meet in all kinds of circumstances and yet 
All of them have this great blessing of being in the presence of the living God. Uh, we thank you too that your presence is not the same as our presence with one another. I mean, our presence with one another is physical. Um, it's it's a, a bodily thing. But your presence with us is internal. That you are with us in our minds and in our hearts. You know what's going through them throughout the service and you know the burdens and the distresses and the fears and the concerns that we have. You also know the things that for which we uh, give you thanks because in life there is that double um, almost opposites happening the things for which we can give you thanks and things for which we come to you with uh, anxiety. Lord, therefore, help us to realize that your presence is an indication that you are able to meet with us in our personal states and speak to us from your word, uh, the living word of the living God. And we do ask you, Lord, as we have our service today, that you would speak to us from your word, that it would become a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your word is not like any other book. It's a supernatural one, and it speaks powerfully and clearly. And we pray, Lord, that that would be the case this morning. And we pray it would be the case wherever your people uh, gather. So that today would be a time of um, great edification, encouragement, and blessing, wherever your people are. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, then remember us, remember the congregation here as they face their, their current situation. We pray that you would lead them through it all. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you encourage us to pray, uh, to pray for all connected to this current situation. Uh, we remember the Rennick family and that you would uh, help them and be with them, but be with also every other uh, family and individual in the situation that we are going through. Lord, um, it's good for us that we can uh, turn to yourself. Your word tells us in one of the Psalms that in your day of great trouble, see that you call on me. And it is therefore important for us uh, to call upon you. And we ask you, Lord, to come in grace and mercy and love and wisdom and in power. And we just commit everything that we are facing into your hands and that you would remember uh, us in, a, in your own divine and special manner. 
We pray, Lord, for any who are not well at this time, that you would remember them, uh, whether it's illness at home or somewhere else, and we pray that you would um, be with such. And Remember those who are facing the everyday struggles of life, and there may be some in the congregation facing that, and we just pray, Lord, that uh, you would help them in these circumstances. Uh, we live in difficult times, and the difficulties are found at all levels of life. And we pray, Lord, that you yourself would be working in your providence because everything that we are experiencing in life, at whatever level it might be, is all part of your providence. And we pray that you be working in all of your providences. Indeed, your word assures us that you are, because as Paul reminds us, all things work together for good. He doesn't say all things will work together, but uh, all things are working together. And we confess, Lord, there are times when we find that hard to understand, but that is what your word says to us, that all things, and all things means all things, not just all things that's happening to us as individuals, but all things that are happening, that they're working together in your providence, and you are working to do bring about the outcomes that you have, yourself have planned. And therefore it's good for us to know that we are coming to a sovereign, omnipotent God. And we pray that you would just remind us of that as we go through life day by day. So, Lord, be with us in our service. Remember us for our adults or children. And we just pray that you would uh, give your blessing. So be with us, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen. <coughs> speak to the children for a few minutes. Um, I want to speak to you about a 10-year-old girl who had a very unusual surname. And I'm not even too sure I can pronounce it. And there may be somebody here with the surname, I don't know. But I have never met anybody with the surname. And uh, the surname, I'll just say it at the beginning. And after that I'll just talk about her first name. But uh, Her surname was Am Furston. U-M. P-H-E-R-S-T-O-N She lived just outside Edinburgh in the year 1683 and her first name was Beatrix. And what's so special about Beatrix? Well, in the year I don't know how much we know of history and this is probably for the adults rather than the children but in the year 1683, we've heard of the Covenanters. It was a time when the Covenanters were being persecuted. And those being persecuted or influenced by the, by the or opposed, sorry, by the authorities involved old people, it involved adults, and it involved children. And in a village outside Edinburgh called Pentland, there were 
uh, 14 girls all of them aged <coughs> 10 years old and the leader of these girls was Beatrix and they did something which you might not have heard of anybody doing but they put together a document and they all signed it and it's important I think for us to remember that they were 10 years of age and I'm just going to read some of the things that they wrote in this document and if there's some words you don't understand you can ask me afterwards or ask when you get home anyway this is some of the things they said this is a covenant that's an agreement made between the Lord and us with our whole hearts and to give up ourselves freely to him without reserve soul and body hearts and affections to be his children and him to be our God and Father if it please the Holy Lord to send the gospel to this land again because the churches were not allowed really to preach the gospel back then they also said that we stand to this covenant which we have written between the Lord and us as we shall answer at the great day that we shall never break this covenant which we have made between the Lord and us that we shall stand to this covenant which we have made and if not it shall be a witness against us in the great day when we shall stand before the Lord and his holy angels it's quite extraordinary a ten year old girl would say that isn't it or a group of ten year old girls who are all about 14 of them the document closes the document is a lot longer than that but it closes with these words we shall declare before the Lord that we have bound ourselves in covenant to be covenanted to him all the days of our life to be his children and him our covenanted father so Beatrix and her 14 friends all signed it we may wonder what happened to Beatrix well she was 10 she lived another 80 years and she lived to see better times that's true she also married a minister and she served Jesus in that way but isn't it true that she was very brave and in love with Jesus even when she was 10 years of age and I think she speaks to us about that doesn't she well sing again this time from Psalm 34 and sing Psalms and we'll sing verses 1 to 9 <coughs> at all times I will bless the Lord I'll praise him with my voice because I glory in the Lord let troubled souls rejoice 1 to 9 
Uh, we can read from the book of Hebrews and chapter 11 at verse 32 down to verse 2 of chapter 12. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, <coughs> refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. <coughs> Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's probably a reference to Isaiah. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And may God bless that reading to us. We'll sing again this time. Again from Sing Psalms, Psalm 119, the section beginning at verse 25, down to verse, well, the whole section. My soul is laid low in the dust, <coughs> give life according to your word. I showed my ways, you answered me, <coughs> teach me your just decrees, O Lord.
Now we can turn back uh, to Hebrews chapter 12 <coughs> and I'd like us to think together about verses 1 and 2. We can reread them. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God Uh, sometimes um, we know that uh, um, things are hard to appreciate can often be explained by one word and that one word uh, becomes the key for understanding what's being said or done and the book of Hebrews can be a bit complex at times for anybody who reads it because for large portions of it, in order to fully appreciate the points we made by the author, we need to know some of the details of the Old Testament rituals. And uh, I don't suppose too many of us know a lot about um, those rituals and how many there were and so on. And therefore we have to ask ourselves, is there a word that helps us to understand uh, the book of Hebrews and, and which we can apply to every chapter within the book? And uh, I think there is a word, and that particular word is the word better. And the, the problem facing the, the recipients of this letter was that they were facing opposition that was quite intense. And the opposition came from uh, two sources. Uh, one source was the, uh, the Roman Empire, the authorities of the empire, who were beginning to become very suspicious of this global movement uh, connected to Jesus Christ. And they didn't like any of these kind of movements, especially, movements, sorry, especially since they tended uh, uh, to meet at strange times. And the, and the times that they met was in the evening, because uh, most of them were slaves and they could only uh, gather after they had finished their work. But anyway, they were meeting and they had what the authorities thought were strange rituals taking place, which like we call the Lord's Supper, but they didn't really understand all that. And they, the authorities were getting very suspicious of them and what they were doing, and therefore they were starting to uh, persecute them. And we can see reference to that in the book of Hebrews. But the other source of trouble was coming from their uh, fellow countrymen, their fellow Jews. And their fellow Jews were saying to these Jews who had become Christians, uh, they were saying to them, uh, what have you got in, com in comparison to what we've got? And of course, the book of Hebrews was written before the temple in Jerusalem was, was, uh, was flattened by the Romans. So they had all these rituals taking place in the temple. And, and of course, the 
all these rituals, every one of them had a Bible verse behind them. And, uh, and the, the, the Jews could point to the various commands in the Old Testament and say, God said do this, and therefore why are you not doing it? And, um, and that's a very strong attack, isn't it? Especially if you're being persecuted. Is God really with us? That would be a, a question that would be crossing their minds. And um, the author of this book basically writes it to show how Jesus is better than everything the Jews uh, boasted in. The Jews saw a great deal of angels. So in the first two chapters he shows how um, Jesus is much better than the angels. The Jews obviously had a very high regard for Moses and Aaron. And in the next chapters in Hebrews the author shows how Jesus is much better than Moses and Aaron. Because when we think about it, uh, Moses and Aaron, <coughs> great men though they were, and as far as the promised land was concerned, neither of them got there. And uh, he also goes through in great detail how Jesus is better than all the sacrifices that were offered in the temple for taking away sin. He points out that none of these sacrifices actually took away sin. But the sacrifice of Jesus um, does take away sin. And then we come to chapter 11. <clears throat> and of course the Jews la love to boast about their theological pedigree and all their prominent ancestors. And the, the author doesn't dispute that these um, men and women were, were worthy of respect. And he, he lists some of them. And indeed we can see from verse 32 that he is conscious he's running out of space. That he, he's only got down as far as uh, the, the children of Israel coming into Canaan when they came to Jericho. He's only got as far as that. And, and if he was to start recounting the, the rest of the heroes of the faith that are found in the Old Testament, well, uh, how long would the book of Hebrews have become if he had done that? So he just basically stops and summarizes what happened after uh, Jericho. And the chapter division sort of hides something. Because we tend to read it and stop at the end of chapter 11. Whereas verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 are really part of chapter 11. And they show how Jesus is better than all the Old Testament saints. And of course I think that's an important thing for us to remember that the best thing the Christian church has is, is Jesus. And that with him we have God's best. Anyway, to this morning, briefly, I want to think about this illustration that he uses, um, taken from everyday life, uh, the games, the race of the games, and he says four things about these races that um, he applies to, to the Christian life. I just want to think about them briefly. And then, secondly, there's the example that he provides. Who is our example? Is it Abraham? Is it Moses? 
That's who is our example? In his argument I'm talking about. And then thirdly, just a few words about the exhortation at the end. Looking to Jesus. So the illustration, the, this race, and looks like a steeplechase to me, but I'll explain that in a minute. But um, as I said, there's four things said about the race, and he says, first of all, there's so great a cloud of witnesses. The we don't use the word cloud in the way that this author is using the word cloud. Uh, but the word cloud is basically a, a, um, a word that was used to say there was a great number of them. I actually wonder if that's the meaning it has, for example, when Paul writes to, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and says we shall be caught up in the clouds into the air. I think most of us tend to think and he's talking about the... the um, the white things that float about in the sky but um, it may be that he's actually talking about the number who are going to be caught up because that's what it means here, the great cloud of witnesses there's a great great number of them and the, the ones who are the witnesses are the people he mentions in chapter 11 and he's, and he's using an example that, that happened at these <coughs> games way back in the first century and that is when previous runners in a race had finished the race they didn't go off somewhere and by themselves but instead they went into what was kind of like a grandstand and they waited for everybody else to finish the race and they're the witnesses in the sense that they are telling those still running that the race can be run aren't they? All these individuals, they've run the race and they go into the grandstand and they are sympathizing with the people who are still running but they are telling them by their mere presence that we've run the race and although some of us, and we read about some of them, face great difficulties in running the race we still run it and we finished it and even though there might have been problems along the way they still got into the grandstand and became witnesses to the fact that the race could be run and as he points out there's many of them and they all say the same thing they testify to this fact that the race can be run that faith takes people through life running this race that's the first thing he mentions about the race. Lots of people run it. I think that's quite relevant for today. People tell us that Christianity is a, a thing from the past, no longer relevant. Well, there's millions of witnesses who speak to us and say it is relevant. And they have finished their race. And some of them went through very difficult times. Even that girl I was speaking about earlier on. But they, told, they all testify to us that we can win the race, run it, and get to the end. But he also points out that um, they have to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Now we would think it very strange if somebody turned up at the starting line with a sack of coal on their back, wouldn't we? 
we would say well there's um, that's a strange thing to carry if you're running a race and if the, if the person said to us oh the, as, as I ran the race um, I'm passing my house and I'll just drop the sack of coal off there we still wouldn't think it would be a very sensible thing for the person to have done running the race would we if you're running the race you don't carry anything whatever it is and even sometimes good things would hinder running the race wouldn't it it's the, the, the picture that he's been given is that anything that hinders running the race should be disposed of anything it doesn't matter if it's um, neutral in itself if it hinders us as individuals from running the race we just get rid of it and that's not an easy thing to do but that's what he's saying to them and maybe by implication he's saying to them you've discarded all these Jewish things that were once required that once were good things but you no longer need them and don't need to be worried about them and to our ass it's been saying well just look at your life is there something in my life that's hindering me running the race and it may not be hindering somebody else who's running the race but just because somebody else is doing it there's no reason for me to do it if it's hindering me in running my race and at the same time our sin which stinks just sticks very closely it clings sin is, sin is like that it clings it takes a bit of effort to take something that clings to get rid of it and he doesn't say what sin he's highlighting and some people just think it's a sin of unbelief but since the author himself doesn't specify what it is well it's just any sin and we're all prone to different sins and therefore we're told to get rid of the ones that cling to us and just throw them away as it were lay aside these things nothing to hinder us in running the Christian race the third thing he says is it's not a sprint I mean I can't do a hundred yards or a marathon I'm no example for either of them but but the the, the hundred person that runs the hundred yards well it looks good doesn't it I'm not suggesting there's no anything I'm not not suggesting there's anything bad around a hundred yards but it looks good but they run it and then they're they don't seem to be able to run any further they've put so much effort into this um, short run and and that's it, it's over but the picture here is not of a, a sprinter doing something rapidly but it's somebody running a race and keeping going whatever comes just keeping going like a steeplechase as we know in the steeplechase there's all kinds of fences and other things that the, the runner has to jump over he can't run round them he has to jump over them and I think that's the kind of race that's been said here and it's very tiring I'm sure that most people running a marathon or a long steeplechase there's lots of occasions where they feel like giving up 
But if they, if they give up, they don't finish the race. And that's uh, something for us to remind ourselves of. In the Christian race, we have to keep going. We have to run with endurance, the pain barrier. Never experienced it in my life, but that's because I haven't run these races. I'm sure if any of us have run these races and experienced a pain barrier, we know what it's like to go through it. And uh, the author says here, just keep going. Keep on going. And of course the fourth thing is the obvious one. The course is not marked out by the, by the runner. The runner doesn't decide, I think I'll run this way today and another way tomorrow. That would be a very strange race if it was the runners that decided the course. I mean, God has decided the course. Every runner that's mentioned in chapter 11, God planned their course. And we can read some of the interesting things that happened to each of them as they ran the race that God mapped out for them. And we have a race mapped out for us by the God... God of providence and in this race we have to persevere endure keep on going as it were so that's the illustration that he mentions but then he, co- <coughs> but then he comes to the example and we might think well surely the example is all these people mentioned in chapters 11 and then no doubt in a secondary sense they are examples but in a primary sense they're not the example we're to follow good as though Abraham was and good as though David was and good as though Moses was and good as though all of them were the names he mentions there Gideon, Barak and Samson and so on none of them ran a perfect race all of them made mistakes at some stage in their life and and it hindered them for a certain period of time and so on and and there's something quite intriguing about that isn't there because he's, he's writing to imperfect people and he could have used other imperfect people as their example but he didn't instead the example is the only one who has run a perfect race Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, sorry, the founder and perfecter of our faith, or the author and finisher of our faith, other versions have it. Now there's something very important about that phrase and this, which we need to take in mind. I'm just going to mention it to you so you can think about it, and that is that the little word hour is not in the original language. It has to be, it's been provided by the translators because they think it's referring to our faith and <coughs> you have to be wise when you dis- disagree with translators and um, but it is possible that the author didn't want to put the word our in because he wanted them to think of the faith of Jesus that he is the real example of faith it is true as far as the faith of a Christian is concerned that Jesus is the author and finisher of it but sometimes we can 
have a biblical truth and think it's in a verse when it might not be in a verse and it looks to me it's just my suggestion to you that what the author is saying here is not so much look to the faith of other imperfect people but rather look to the faith of the only one who was perfect who lived the best life of faith and of course that's Jesus and as we think of Jesus well Psalm 22 tells us when his faith began it tells us that from his mother's belly and that we find that hard to understand but the Jesus' faith it marked his entire life as a child when we see him at 12 years of age going to the temple he's marked by faith he's going up to find out what the scriptures say and discussing it with the, with the, the teachers and so on at the temple and then he goes back by faith to live with um, Joseph and Mary and be subject to them and everything he did in all these unknown years it was all done by faith Jesus was a faith as a child was full of faith we thought of that 10 year old girls who were marked by faith but their faith was imperfect but Jesus' faith as a child was perfect and as a teenager as an adolescent his faith was perfect and then when he comes to uh, when he was uh, working in a carpenter shop he did it all by faith there was nothing he didn't do by faith by trusting God and even in this and we come to the three years of his public ministry everything's by faith he exercises faith when he's going to sleep in the boat in the stormy sea I mean it is true he was tired but tiredness doesn't always make you sleep through a storm but Jesus was marked by faith his heavenly father was in charge and he had total faith in him he had faith in Gethsemane in the darkest of moments that came his way his faith his faith was seen on the cross even in the most profoundest words that are, that are virtually unexplainable why have you forsaken me but who did he say it to he said to the one whom he called my God that was a real statement of faith and of course his faith was seen in this prayer life he prayed about everything before he was baptized he prayed before he chose the twelve apostles he prayed up in the Mount of Transfiguration he prayed and of course in the Garden of Gethsemane he prayed and he prayed because he was a man of faith he lived that way of life perfectly and he said here to be the founder and the perfecter of faith now the, the, the idea behind the word founder is it would be used of a pioneer or a forerunner of somebody who goes where no one else has gone and Jesus 
with his faith certainly went where no one else had gone because by faith as the writer goes on to point, point out he went through the cross none of these people in chapter 11 despite their notable achievements none of them did anything remotely like what Jesus did on the cross when he by faith went through all that happened there and he pioneered we want to put it this way he took faith to a new level I mean, I mean how, do, how do we estimate the degree of faith that Jesus exercised on the cross at Calvary faith in the darkness faith in all the confusion that's there words can't describe it but uh, however we look at it we are seeing faith at a new level and extraordinary who could I mean if somebody had read Psalm 22 before Jesus was on the cross what would they have made of it what kind of man could actually live out this psalm well we know the answer to that question Jesus did and he elevated faith to a height that no one had ever seen before and no one will ever reach but unlike the ones of chapter 11 whose personal faith doesn't do anything for us the faith of Jesus does everything for us because he suffered there and he perfected it we could say that faith has potential but the potential of faith was fully realized in Jesus <coughs> he shows us what faith can achieve he made the faith of Abraham was great and we feel like pygmies standing beside him but the faith of Jesus well, what is the faith of Abraham when compared to the faith of Christ he brought it to perfection and the writer tells us what the perfection was it was because of the joy that was ahead of him and sometimes and there's nothing wrong with it but sometimes we divide the joy and we try and list the things that would make him happy in the world to come and we, we talk about the well his exaltation and his meeting his people and all that and all these wonderful things are very true but I think by dividing it we're actually losing the point the point is that ahead of Jesus as he suffered on the cross in the in all the ugliness and whatever else was taking place there he realized that ahead of him was an ongoing endless experience of the fullness of joy that's what he tells us in himself in Psalm 16 listen to it in your presence is fullness of joy 
there in the sadness of the cross Jesus the sin bearer was conscious that ahead of him was an endless fullness of joy that words cannot describe and he's there now in that experience of joy in his father's presence but he was thinking of it this is what in a sense helped him his faith his faith we could say couldn't we his faith took a real hold of the future that had not yet happened to him in the midst of his agony he saw what was ahead and we're to learn from that to bring into our current circumstances the world of glory that's to come and at the same time the writer says this man of perfect faith despised the shame I mean what shame Jesus endured who can possibly understand it the creator being abused by his creatures mocked there he is performing the greatest activity that's ever been performed in the whole history of the world indeed the greatest activity that will ever be performed in the whole history of eternity and as he's performing it the onlookers are deriding him and what does he do? this man of faith he despises the shame it's not merely that he perseveres through the shame but he despises the shame this man none like him our saviour what's the point as the writer is saying to go back and think about Abraham and Moses and David and all the rest of them what's the point of thinking about them if you don't think about Jesus and therefore he tells them to look at him as he now has his very special award sitting at God's right hand the highest place he's sitting in the place that only God has got a right to go to but he's there as the God man highly exalted given the name that's above every name and we're to look at him and the idea of looking here is it's got the idea of looking to the exclusion of everything else so wonderful 
so satisfying, so sufficient is the sight of Christ. And he doesn't just say, look at for five minutes in the morning and then forget about it for the rest of the day. But we're to look at him throughout the day. Constantly. That's the exhortation. And how, what can we um, say about this looking as we come towards the end? But I was just trying to think about this. Because what's it mean to look at something you can't see? It's not the first time in this book that the author has referred to them um, observing what they can't see. But he says in chapter 2 that we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor where we see him by faith and our faith can be very weak and, and um, all kinds of clouds can come between us and him but we're meant to look and the writer exhorts us here looking unto Jesus looking to Jesus well surely we're to look to him with admiration are we not? What uh, what uh, everything did was perfect. Even little things that he did. He took somebody by the hand. Jairus's daughter. No doubt, in that sad situation, Jairus and his wife would have taken their daughter by the hand. But what could they do for her? As far as they could see, she was gone. Jesus takes her by the hand. And she comes to life. A seemingly little action. Just taking hold of a hand. And how often that appears. With a hand he touched the leper. And the leper was cured. With his hands he took the loaves and the fish. And fed the multitude. So we look at him with admiration surely. These four gospels are given to us to tell us what Jesus is like. And we admire him. And we admire his faith. The faith that made him keep going into every unknown step on the cross. As it got darker and darker. We also look at him too, don't we, with appreciation. We don't look at him the way we might look at a castle from ancient history. We look at him with appreciation because he's the sin bearer and he's also the sin remover. He paid the penalty for sin but the day is yet to come when he will cleanse the entire cosmos. 
and there'll be a new heavens and new earth. And therefore we look at him with real appreciation for all he's going to do as well as for all that he's done. And connected to that, of course, we should look at him with, with anticipation. We can look at many people and eventually they get to a stage where they cannot help us. But that can never be said about Jesus. We can look at him with anticipation and no matter how often he has helped us in the past, he's fully capable of helping us again. And of course we should look at him with affection. True faith works by love. That goes for everyone who's had true faith. And we say it with reverence, but it marked the Savior. His faith worked by love. He came into the world because he loved sinners, and he, he lived that faithful life, that life of, of full of faith, because he loved. And we love him in return, don't we? We love him because he first loved us. And faith and love are like twins. The stronger our faith, the warmer our love. And the warmer our love, the stronger our faith. And the last thing I want to say is we look at him with adoration. Who is Jesus? He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the one who became man in order to save us from our sins. He's the one who now sits on the throne of God, highly exalted, given the reward that he deserves. All these other people of faith, they're going to get a reward. But actually none of them deserves it, do they? It's rewards of grace they're going to get. It's evidences of God's kindness. But Jesus deserves his reward. He, he has merited it by his wonderful life on earth. We look at him. We look at him now. The Lord of all. Who works everything for the benefit of his body, the church. The one who is the coming judge. And the one who will one day bring into existence a new heavens and new earth. On this day. His day. We look at him, the Lord of all. I hope we all trust in him. He deserves it. Shall we pray? <coughs> Lord, we give you thanks that as your word tells us, you laid help on one that was mighty. The future Savior, the one who came to live a perfect life, 
and as part of that perfection was the content and expression of his faith and we know where he now is at your right hand we give you thanks that he is there we are delighted that he is there but whatever our degree of delight it falls far short of your delight because with great pleasure you said to him sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool help us Lord to honour Jesus as we run our race that we get rid of the things that hinder us whatever they are and of the sins to which we might be prone and that we would run with endurance every step breaking the spiritual pain barrier how often it's required we just keep going because every step takes us closer to the time when we shall see him in a sense in which we cannot see him now so Lord grant us that we would be heeding the words of the author of Hebrews that would be looking to Jesus remember us then for your own name's sake Amen We'll sing from Psalm 119 in the Scottish Psalter and verses 57 to 60. Thou my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord, I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word. Verses 57 to 60.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love